Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thanks for joining me on another installment of New Books in Military History. This is Jay Lockenauer. Speaking with, the, with me today is David Stone. He's the Pickett Professor of Military History at uh, Kansas State University, where they have an excellent program in uh, military history. And he also directs the Institute for Military History there, Institute for Military History and 20th Century Studies there. Uh, he's a well-known author on Russian and Soviet military history. And he's going to speak to me today about his recent work, The Russian Army in the Great War, the Eastern Front, 1914-1917, which just came out this year from the University of Kansas Press. Thanks for joining me, Dave. It's my pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about how you came to this topic, to your, to your interest in Russian military history in general. Well, since we're starting off talking about military history, I do have to make uh, sort of one uh, caveat. Whenever I say I'm the Pickett Professor of Military History, I have to add not that Pickett. is not the Pickett of Pickett's charge. It's the friends of the Bauer family who were very generous donors to Kansas State University who endowed the chair. So not uh, the Pickett of, of Gettysburg. Duly um, noted. We'll put, the, we'll put the first name on the website when we post the interview. I appreciate that. The um, so how I got to this topic, um, I, I went to graduate school studying Soviet military history, uh, in particular the uh, Soviet Army of the 1920s and 1930s. And one of the things that struck me then uh, as, a, as something that kept coming up when I was doing my research was how much that generation of Soviet leadership seemed to be affected by the experience of the First World War. Um, and so I, I went on through my career writing books and articles about the Soviet military, but I always had in the back of my head that at some point I wanted to go back and look a little more seriously at the Russian experience of the First World War. Um, and with the centenary coming up, I, I thought this is a nice opportunity to try to put something together. And one of the things that struck me was that there had been an enormous outpouring of research, particularly by Russian scholars um, writing in Russian about the First World War on the Eastern Front that really had not made it into the literature in English. And so Russian Soviet specialists in this country could certainly get access to that, but the general readership really couldn't. Um, and there was not a lot of literature out there. Um, I mean, one of the things that I, I noted when I was thinking about doing this book was the last book that really covers the military history of the Eastern Front came out 40 years ago. That was Norman Stone. It's no relation to me, but Norman Stone's Eastern Front, um, which has lots of virtues, but again, is 40 years old. And there's an awful lot of water under the bridge since that point and an awful lot of new information that's come out. And so I thought I wanted to put together something that would be a comprehensive but readable introduction to the Eastern Front, bringing in this new literature and the new research that's been done since uh, Russian archives opened up, and put that in front of an English-speaking audience that hasn't had access to that. So that's really the kind of the, the long-term story of how I came to, to do this book. So it's interesting. I was going to ask you about the Normans, if there were a Norman Stone connection, and um, apparently there's not. But but that book kind of exemplifies in some ways what you're working against. Not that you're necessarily overturning in a dramatic way his argument, but in some ways 
his book kind of stood for the Eastern Front. World War One was really the trenches on the West and the artillery and the rats and all that kind of stuff. And then if you want to know about the East, you looked at Norman Stone. And in some ways, what you're emphasizing in this book are the commonalities, um, both between the Central Powers and the Allies in some ways, but in, in terms of the learning process, even the, even the battles in some way on the Eastern and the Western Front. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I, I certainly would be – I mean, there, there are lots of important differences between the Eastern Front and the Western Front. Um, but I think in the general literature, there's been a certain tendency to dismiss the Eastern Front as irrelevant. Um, and certainly, I, I understand why, to an Anglo-American audience – um, their interest is going to be mostly in what their own ancestors did. Americans are go- going to want to know about the American experience of the First World War, and the British are going to want to know about the British experience of the First World War. Um, but the Eastern Front is important and I think has a lot to teach us, and in particular a, a kind of structured comparison of the experience of the Eastern Front to the West brings out a lot, I think, of the uniqueness of the Russian case, but also cases in which um, the, the powers fighting World War I look a lot alike in ways that I think may have been concealed um, by what's been done before. And, and none of this, I, nothing I say about Norman Stone's book, The Eastern Front, is intended to, to, to say that this is a bad work of history or that Norman Stone's not a good scholar. I mean, it was, it was a towering achievement. The reason it's lasted 40 years is because he did a really good job. I thought there was just room to do an updating, to, to bring it up to date, to add more literature, to do something a little bit different, um, rather than attempt to say that he had in some way had done something wrong, to say that I can say something a little bit new. Well, it hasn't been 40 years, but it's been some time since I read uh, Norman Stone's book. And it seems like you also provide um, say more operational details, some, some of the battles that you emphasize in the, the uh, say, around Poland or Galicia. I don't recall receiving the same attention in, in the earlier work. Yeah, I mean, there are, I think, differences in emphasis. Um, and one of the things I wanted to try to do as I was setting out my goals for, for what I wanted the book to do was to be reasonably comprehensive in terms of the Russian experience. And so that meant including campaigns that I think are often left out. Um, and for example, Norman Stone's book really um, doesn't say much at all about the Romanian campaign. Mm. It more or less ends at the end of 1916, and there's, there's important developments that take place after that fact. Um, so I wanted to be able to run from Russian entry in the war in the summer of 1914 up through the last campaigns of the Russian Empire at the very beginning of 1917 and include the war in the Caucasus, in Transcaucasia against the Ottoman Turks, to include the Romanian campaign, um, to, to really try to get all of Russia's experience within sort of one book. Now, that means that there's a certain level of detail that I have to skip past. I can't go into a, an enormous amount of, of uh, analysis. But I did want to try to get as much as I could to be comprehensive in what I was covering. So one of the things, one of the commonalities that that you emphasize is the um, the nature of the Russian Empire. Certainly unique, and you and you pay plenty of attention to its uniqueness. But that it is an empire, like many of its enemies, and uh, in in terms of the Ottoman Empire, the Habsburg Empire, and the and the German Empire, and that they all do suffer similar, they face similar problems, and they suffer similar fates. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a case where. Russia collapses under the strains of war, Uh, and so there's a natural tendency to look for the ways in which Russia is unique and distinct because it collapses under the strains of war. Uh, But what strikes me is that all the empires in Eastern Europe collapsed under the strain of war. 
Um, you know, the Ottoman Empire collapses, the Austrian Empire collapses, the German Empire collapses. There's no more German Empire after 1918. Um, and Kaiser Wilhelm is in, is in exile in the Netherlands. So all the empires find that they cannot meet the test of war. And the Russians are the first to break, but they're not the only ones. And so, again, that comparative context, I think, forces us to look at the ways in which all the European powers are tested by war and then look specifically at the ways in which these different empires break and fall apart in different ways Um, because the end of the Russian Empire is not the same as the end of the Austrian Empire. There are very specific processes that take place. Um, And so there's a commonality of fate. All of them fail the test of war, but they fail that test in different ways. And I think that comparative dimension is pretty interesting and pretty important. I'm I'm formulating a question in my mind that I hadn't expected to to ask, and if if you're not prepared to answer it or willing to, feel free to to sidestep it. But what is it about their common characteristics as empires that makes them um, vulnerable? So you, you define empire very clearly, which I appreciated as as a combination of authoritarian government, varied political structures, and a, a heterogeneous population. With those the issues that caused all four of them to collapse really within a year of each other? Uh, I don't know if I go that far um, because to a degree, I mean, essentially it's not the United Kingdom at war. It's the British empire at war. Um, And so Australians and New Zealanders are fighting. Um, The British empire is drawing soldiers from India and from Africa and all over. And so, and France is an empire. France is a little less dependent on its empire to fight the war than, than, than Britain is. Um, But, until the United States enters the war, I think you can make a good case that all the parties fighting are empires. And you can make a reasonably good case that the United States is an empire in 1914. It's, just, it's not as clearly an empire. Um, it's, it's harder to put the U.S. in that category, but you can make an argument. Um, and so I think that what we may be looking at here is a kind of an old tradition in European history, which is that Europe kind of runs on this slope from west to east. Um, that economic and social development is, as a rule, more sophisticated in the West than in the East, and you can kind of draw a slope from, uh, from one end to the other. And so the empires of Eastern Europe are less economically developed, less socially sophisticated. The, their governments are less able to manage particular tasks that they have to deal with. And so I think that might be the pattern that I would observe. And again, we're, we're working at a very high level of generality here. Um, but I would say that that's what I would point to as an overall interpretive art rather than just the fact of being empires, because I think you can make a case for empire being um, a commonality to all the states at war, uh, all the major powers at war in, in 1914. It might, also, it might be that varied political structure uh, aspect, because in some ways the British Empire varies less French certainly less. The Americans, when they come in, I'd say you know they they don't qualify as empires as much in that kind of category. And really, it's those social political structures that you argue make the Russians particularly vulnerable. The weaknesses of the Tsar's state and really of the Tsar himself. I mean, I do think there is a real aspect of a, a crisis of legitimacy um, that empires have. Uh, Empires can have democratic structures inside them, and to some degree at least, those democratic structures provide a degree of legitimacy um, to uh, the, the, the government that's running the war and what it's asking of its population. Um, and coming out of the 1905 revolution, Russia does have elected institutions, but they're fairly recent. They're fairly shallow. The, there's, there's, it's, it's not like the British Parliament. Um, and so I think there as well you begin to see – some of the inherent flaws in the Russian system of 
um, what it is willing and able to ask of its population and how it's able to tap into popular resources to wage the war. Um, and again, Russia manages to bear up under enormous burdens for two and a half years before the czarist system collapses. So it's not as though the czarist, uh, you know, the czarist empire is a house of cards ready to collapse, um, but it does have these inherent weaknesses that end up costing Russia the war. Um, lots of people have made the point, and it's an important one, that at the beginning of 1917, when Tsar Nicholas II's regime collapses – it's not the army that collapses. The army at the front is still in fairly good shape. Um, the regime collapses from the inside out, um, and so it's the home front that fails. It's the czarist government that that um, gives that essentially gives in first, um, not the, the soldiers at the front who are bearing the, the bulk of the suffering. One of the points that you emphasize already in the introduction is that the failure of the czarist state to really prepare itself for total war. Right? It doesn't transform its society, its economy to the degree necessary or to the degree that, that the Germans do, the British uh, and so forth, that they, they make these accommodations to the needs of, uh, of the, the style of war being fought in the Great War. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really striking about the Russian experience of war is just how dependent it is for very basic functions on uh, the voluntary efforts of Russian civil society. Uh, and the, the easiest way to see this is in medical care. Um, an astoundingly high proportion of the medical care of sick and wounded soldiers falls to Russian civil society and Russian local government. And you would expect that of all things, that it's the Russian central state that would be responsible for the care of wounded soldiers. Um, and it's really not. And so there's two things to notice about that. I mean, one is that Russian civil society turns out to be fairly effective. It, it does a good job at what it's being asked to do. That, that's one point. But the other point is that the czarist state is always reluctant and slow to fully integrate Russian society into the war effort. Um, the Russian war ministry was always leery of private industry when it came to arms contracts and munitions manufacturing. Um, the Russian state is always mistrustful of the political agendas of Russian civil society. And that has this um, long-term corrosive impact on support for the Tsarist regime and Russia's performance in the war that turns out to be, in the end, fateful uh, in, in finally bringing down the regime. It's kind of a vicious cycle. The, the lack of confidence in their own legitimacy breeds further questions about the legitimacy of the state, which then uh, leads to its defeat. Indeed. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it. So with, the, with this notion of the collapse of the civil society, the, the home front, essentially, as a German historian, I can't uh, uh, avoid the comparison to the stab in the back legend of the, you know, the 1920s, that, that it was Jews and socialists who promulgated by Hitler and Ludendorff and so forth, that, that uh, the army had been victorious at the front. You don't deal with this directly, but could you kind of play that out? I'm sure from your earlier work, this is familiar to you. How does... The revolution, the the new Red Army. How does that shape what what story? I guess the way to ask is, what story are they telling about the end mm -hmm. of the war that takes that into account? Well, in, in comparative terms, what's really striking about the Russian experience in, of World War One um, is how quiet Russian society is about the war once it's over. Um, you know, essentially, and it looks like when I look at Britain and France and Germany. Every general writes his memoirs, you know, sort of basically every British officer with literary pretensions writes memoirs. Um, there's just this enormous outflowing of debate and discussion and analysis of the war and what it meant. Um, and in Russia, that doesn't really happen. 
Um, and so this, the, the dichotomy is striking. Um, there's this enormous lot of memoir literature um, from sort of generals on down to common soldiers in, in, the, in Western Europe, and it's just not there in Russia. And I think there's, a, there's several things going on. I mean, part of it is an illiterate peasantry. Um, you know, in Western Europe, essentially, more or less, every soldier, common soldier can read and write. And in Russia, that's just not the case. Um, you know, Russia's literary, uh, literacy rate has improved quite a bit um, by the beginning of the 20th century, but still there are a lot of illiterate peasants. And so you don't have a lot of soldiers, common soldiers writing memoirs. Um, once the war is over, Russia goes immediately into a civil war. And so Russia's elites that survive World War I, many of them die during the civil war. Um, if they survive the civil war, a bunch of them are exiled. They can no longer live safely inside the new communist Russia. And so they're scraping by and earning a living as taxi drivers or doing whatever in Western Europe or the United States or Argentina or wherever they end up. Um, and for the, the Marxists, the ones that end up on the side of the new Bolshevik communist regime, um, the story they want to tell is of communist victory in the Civil War. It's not really about World War I. That was sort of the, the, the war before last, not the one that they want to talk about. And so it's not that there's a conspiracy of silence, but it's really quite silent. Um, and so this, there's some degree of commemoration, but almost none. Um, there's a very good book by Karen Patrone on memory of World War I mm-hmm. in Russia after, after the war. Um, and one of the things she, she deals with at length is the silence how there's so, such a striking lack of commemoration and discussion. I mean, one of the places you do have discussion of the war and what went wrong um, is among the Red Army, because the Red Army needs to know, for its own purposes, how the war was fought, what worked, and what didn't. And so there's a lot of really good analysis of Russia's war record by the new Soviet Army, looking back at the experience. Uh, its own officers, generally speaking, had fought in World War I, and so they had been there, they'd seen it, and they wanted to analyze it for their own purposes. Um, and they do a very nice job with it. And the story they tell is, I think, fairly straightforward. What they tell is that Russia had some serious failings at the level of the high command, um, which is very convenient if you're a Bolshevik, but it also, I think, happens to be true. Um, and so the, the Russian army, the Soviet army, after World War I, doesn't really have to do a lot of violence to the historical record when it's talking about the war and what went on. Um, what it wants to do and the story it wants to tell nicely coincides with, with reality, I think. Well, I can put in a quick plug for Patron's book. It was on my list of, of books to read, and, and to, I was ready to interview her when I got scooped by one of the other channels on the New Books Network. So I believe it's cross-posted on our New Books in Military History, but I didn't actually get to read the book or speak with her. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that and, mm-hmm. and provided that reminder. Let's, let's talk about some of the battles, um, first of all. The, the fall of 1940. 14 interests me as a as a scholar working on uh, Eric Ludendorff, the German general, um, and I, I was really fascinated to see your account of it. Uh, did my our mutual acquaintance David Karens wanted me to ask you about your impressions of Solzhenitsyn's August 1914 as a as a as a story of that time period. I read it recently, and uh, he he turned me on to it. Yeah, as, uh, Solzhenitsyn's that, that August 1914. I really enjoyed. I, I have to be honest. I last read it in Moscow 20 years ago. <laughs> so, okay. um, and it, as Solzhenitsyn's novels go, uh, it, it's, I think, underrated. I, it's definitely a good read. Um, he has a fairly idiot, I mean, every, like with everything with Solzhenitsyn, he has a fairly idiosyncratic view on lots of issues of Russian history. Um, and his interpretation of, I mean, I think in terms of the, 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 the events of the Battle of Tannenberg in 1914, it's really not bad, it's pretty good. Um, but there's a sort of wistfulness in Solzhenitsyn that the alliance with France was always a bad idea. 
Um, mm. And part of this is Solzhenitsyn's own attitudes of mistrusting the West and Western culture. And so I think Solzhenitsyn, to a certain degree, sees um, Wilhelmine Germany as more in line with Russian values and that Russia sacrificed itself in 1914 in service of, you know, sort of, uh, sterile, godless, um, calculating, ir- uh, excessively rational and logical Western Europe. Um, and so that's where I think that Solzhenitsyn, in, in my opinion, goes wrong, is that he's sort of imposing his own particular interpretations of Russia and what Russian culture means and, and reading World War I through that lens, that, that Russia was fighting the wrong war against the wrong enemy. So there are two points about that, uh, that those early battles that you make. Uh, one is that you tend to play down the rivalry between Zamsonov and Renenkampf, that the notion of their, their hostility to one another really influencing uh, their cooperation is, is overblown. Yeah, and I think as far as I can tell, that goes back to Max Hoffman, who's the staff officer underneath uh, in the 8th Army defending East Prussia. Um, and there really, no one's been able to find much concrete evidence that this this rivalry between the two Russian generals, Samsonov and Rennenkampf, actually amounted to anything. Um, and when you, when you look through the operational documents, um, and the Russian side's all been published, you can read day by day, hour by hour, what the uh, generals are saying to each other. To my mind, you don't need a personal rivalry between Samsonov and Rennenkampf to explain what's going on in East Prussia in 1914. Um, the geography of East Prussia... Um, with the Masurian lakes dividing your approach routes to one from the east and one from the south, forces the two Russian armies to remain separate. And that leaves an opening for the German 8th Army defending East Prussia, if it plays its cards right, to defeat first one and then the other. And, then that, and that's exactly how it works out. And again, it, it's a matter of geography and concrete military decision-making. Uh, you don't need personal rivalries, I think, to explain what happens. So I can't – I'm not well equipped to judge Zoltsinichin's um – factual accuracy in, in terrific detail, but one of the things he certainly evokes, uh, and, and you do as well in, in, in a more prosaic way, is that geography and those um, failures of command. Uh, Samsonov comes off looking like a more or less like an imbecile in Zoltsinichin, which may be overstating it, but, but the mistakes that were made become you know, tangible for the, for the soldiers that Solzhenitsyn is writing about. And you get this really sense, real sense of uh, despair that, that things are just completely falling apart and, and no one knows what to do. Yeah. And, and one of the things, one of the things I found writing at the, the kind of level of um, analysis that I wanted to do to be able to put the whole book inside two covers um, was that I really couldn't get down to the level of the experience of the individual soldier. Um, not that, you know, and so different kinds of military history do different things. There's military history that wants to look at the experience of the individual soldier. Um, and given what I wanted to do, I really couldn't do that. And as I suggested earlier, given the nature of Russian peasant soldiers, that most of them or many of them are illiterate, uh, that we don't have a lot of accounts of what it was like to be a soldier in the, in the Russian army 1914, um, that experience is closed off to us in a way that's not, say, for the British army. In, on the Western Front, where you really can get at the experience of the individual soldier. It's much harder to do on the Russian side. And so someone like Solzhenitsyn, who can recreate that in literary form, I think really does con- contribute something. Even though I don't agree with Solzhenitsyn's readings of the, the vast scope of Russian history, um, I'd be the last person to deny that he knows how to tell a story, and he knows how to paint characters, and he knows how to get across the sense of confusion. Um, when soldiers are marching into through endless forests and swamps and have no idea where they are, what they're doing, or what they're supposed to do next. Um, and that certainly helps explain a lot of the disintegration of that, that Russian Second Army in the invasion of East Prussia. 
So after telling that story in a very satisfying manner, you turn our attention to uh, Galicia and then to Poland. And you, and you, by doing so, you're arguing that those uh, fronts are in some ways neglected, partly because Ludendorff and Hindenburg are such vigorous self-promoters, that, so the victors of those battles uh, got to tell the stories. Um, but really, in, in terms of the war and what it tells you about the Russian army and its capabilities, maybe these other campaigns are are better indications or worth focusing on. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I'd say they're better, but they're certainly as good in the sense that um, in 1914, when Russia goes to war, it's essentially fighting two physically separated campaigns, the invasion of East Prussia, which is a decisive German victory, and the clash with the Austrians in Galicia, um, which ends up being disastrous for the Austrians. Um, It's a much bloodier struggle. Um, It sort of rips the guts out of the Austrian army. The Austrian army never fully recovers from the loss of experienced soldiers and and officers that it suffers in Galicia. Um, And one of the things that that strikes me writing the book, and I, I hope gets across to readers, is just how much happens in 1914. It's an enormously um, dense period of time in terms of military actions because immediately after the end of the East Prussian campaign and the Russian victories in Galicia, there's another follow-on campaign in which the Germans, with some Austrian assistance, strike into Poland going after Warsaw. And that ends up being this epic struggle um, that is, is really neglected. There's not a lot of attention paid in English language literature. And as you suggested, I think a lot of it has to do with um, the fact that, that um, Hindenburg and Ludendorff do a great job of publicizing their own achievements. Um, I also think it's that for a very long time, literature in English about the Eastern Front depended on what the German generals had to say. Um, that people who wanted to write about the Eastern Front, the source they had readily at hand were German generals' memoirs. And lots more Americans and British spoke German um, lots more German literature was translated into English. And so those were what people had available to them. And so that's the, kind of the point of view that's brought across. And so campaigns in which the Russians come off looking much better, in which they, they sort of stand up to the Germans toe-to-toe and do fairly well, um, those don't get the same kind of attention. And so the, the campaigns in Galicia at the very beginning of the war and then the follow-on campaigns um, at Warsaw and then at Łódź um, in 1914 just aren't there. Um, they're, they're not present in the consciousness of those who are writing about the history of the Eastern Front. So you, you argue pretty clearly that the, the, the decisive advantage that the Germans really had in, in the war was their heavy artillery, that, that that was really disastrous for the Russians not to be able to match that, um, not to be able to provide shells for the artil- artillery that they had, because in the, in the terrain of East of Eastern Europe and, and Russia being able to destroy the frontline fortifications and force the enemy into, into the open to fight was decisive and resulted in huge Russian casualties. Yeah. And I think you especially see that in 1915, um, in 1914, the, the campaigns are still sufficiently mobile that heavy artillery doesn't matter so much because, uh, field fortifications and trenches, um, aren't as useful as they become later in the war because things are moving too quickly. Um, in a sense, the, the fighting bypasses trench systems before they can get really dug in. Um, but then in 1915, we really do see this issue of artillery coming to the fore. Um, and that's the Great Retreat. In the late spring of 1915, when the fronts have stabilized, um, the German high command makes a, a considered decision to turn its reserves east 
that the chance for quick victory in the West has been lost, and so the time has come to, to turn forces east to see what can be done against the Russians. Um, and what the Germans engineer in, at the, the Battle of Gorlice Tarnow in, in Poland is a breakthrough of the Russian line by using heavy artillery, which the Russians can't recover from for months. The Germans are able to systematically continue a process of keeping the Russians withdrawing until essentially the Russians have to abandon all of Poland. Um, and the initial, the, that initial process really depends on heavy artillery, that the Germans can physically annihilate Russian frontline positions because the Germans have heavy artillery and the Russians don't. Now, after that, once things are moving, then you see German superiority in mobile warfare um, coming to the fore. It's less than about heavy artillery and more about German ability to operate on the battlefield. Um, in a sense, when you, when you go through the, the, the narrative of what happens in 1915, you can see German operational work repeatedly. There's a, a series of kind of four iterations of a cycle. The Germans make a breakthrough, force the Russians into retreat, consolidate their gains, and then launch another offensive before the Russians can prepare themselves to meet it. And that happens four times over 1917 and ends up with the Russians losing all of Poland. So there's this combination of things going on. One is German superiority in heavy artillery that enables breakthroughs. And then the German superiority in moving troops on the battlefield, getting them to where they need to be, that the Russians are simply not able to react to quickly enough. Um, and I think in both those cases, you, you see a couple bigger issues that I, I would want to point to. Um, in terms of heavy artillery and ammunition, that gets back to the question of ability to organize society for war. Because nobody expects that the war is going to be as draining as it is in terms of war material. And the Russians are less able to cope with that than the other powers that are fighting. That's sort of one point. Um, and then the other is that the Russian high command, while it works reasonably well, is just not quite ever able to react quickly enough to keep up with the Germans. Um, you, know, sort of, you could call that the decision cycle, say, that the, the Germans are making up their minds and implementing plans more quickly than the Russians can deal with it. And both those things, I think, speak to, to a certain degree towards Russia's comparative um, incapacity relative to the Germans. Um, the Russians are always capable of fighting the Austrians. They have no trouble sort of matching up and, and defeating the Austrians. But against the Germans, they're never quite able to manage that. So the, the chapter on the Great Retreat isn't quite the, the numerical center of, of the book, but it certainly feels like the, the, the heart, the middle of the book, because it's the point at which you show – you make two points that I think are, are, are themes throughout the book. One is the failure of – the uh, Russian social political system, and it's the you argue that it's the Great Retreat that that puts a you know that hammers starts to hammer that apart the political system, but not the military one. That that the fact that the military recovers from that long retreat in 1915 to launch uh, serious offensives and to perform quite admirably in 1916, uh, relatively speaking, speaks to the. The relative capability of the the military side of the Russian equation as opposed to the social political one. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, the, the bigger themes that I, I talk about in the book is is contingency, that things could have worked out very differently. Um, because when we talk about the war on the Western Front, it has a certain kind of inevitability that, you know, you've got four years of, of soldiers shooting at each other and dying for no reason. Um, and there's a certain kind of faded fadedness to it. It doesn't seem like anything's happening. Um but in the East, things happen, and things could happen very differently. One of the things that we see in World War I is that armies can collapse, and they do. Um, you know, the German army on the Western Front collapses at the end of the war in August and September 1918. The morale breaks. The Germans are no longer willing to fight. Uh, the Italian army, uh, the Battle of um, 
uh, at the Battle of Caporetto um, is in disaster shape uh, and, and collapses. Um, the end of the war in the east, uh, when the Bulgarian army collapses at the very end of the war. Um, and what's striking about Russian performance in 1915, as they're retreating um, hundreds of miles through Poland, as two million Russian soldiers are killed, wounded, or captured, the Russian army remains a force in being. It's still under orders. It's still organized, and it's still fighting. Um, and that's a negative achievement because it's a defeat, but to some degree at least, it's a defeat which is not devastation. But the Russian army, as you say, holds up and continues to be a force that the Germans have to reckon with. Um, and their efforts at turning reserves east in 1915 to try to end the war that way ends up failing. The Germans have won on the battlefield, but they haven't brought the war any closer to an end. Um, and so the German long-term strategic problem is still as serious as it ever was. That Germany doesn't have the resources um, to maintain a, a global war, that the British blockade is going to have a long-term very uh, negative influence on German quality of life and standards of living, and that Germany's in, in the long run going to have trouble winning the war. So the, the point about contingency forms a nice segue then to let you talk about um – what you stated earlier was an important mission of this book, which was to talk about some of the areas on the Eastern Front that don't get mentioned, um, uh, the Ottoman Empire, Romania, because both of those, you, you make the point very early on that these alliance systems kind of shape the outbreak of the war for sure, but they don't determine certain outcomes. And so that, you know, Italy obviously doesn't honor its alliance obligations. Um, Romania, it's not really clear which side they might join. There's some, you know, factors shaping that. The Ottoman Empire... Uh, obviously, is a set, almost a completely separate decision to enter the war. Um, can you, what was what was what made it so important for you to talk about those areas? Well, what I find when I'm when I'm teaching Western Civ, you know, sort of, I'm, I've got to cover the history of Europe, and I've got 15 weeks to do it. You necessarily simplify. And so there's many times I've given an undergrad lecture about the origins of World War One, and I talk about the importance of the alliance systems. Um, but as you say, the alliance systems turn out to be a little less rigid than you'd expect. Um, Italy was part of the Triple Alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary and wanted no part of the war. Um, Romania was um, sort of essentially holding out to, uh, for the highest bidder um, in 1916. Uh, the Ottoman Turks – uh, end up aligning themselves with the Germans, but they had taken – it was the British that built up the Ottoman Navy. Um, the Germans built the Ottoman Army. The British built the Ottoman Navy. And the Ottomans had made a play for a British alliance. Um, and so one of the things – when you look at the details, it becomes a lot less clear that there's this inevitable march to the war that we had, that there are choices that states make that end up being very important. Um, just one example of that. Uh, we were talking about the invasion of East Prussia um, at the very beginning of the war. Um, Russia invades East Prussia to try to help out the French. Um, up until 1912, that wasn't the Russian war plan. Russian war plans were defensive um, for most of the late 1800s and the early part of the 1900s, and it was only in 1912 that Russia really commits itself to going on the offensive at the outbreak of war. And so if these earlier crises in European history had led to war – um, in 1908 or 1912, the Russians would have gone to war with a fundamentally different war plan. And that changes all sorts of things about the way the war shapes, shapes itself out. Um, and so it's that uncertainty that I wanted to get across, that we have a natural tendency looking backwards to see history as inevitably leading to the outcomes that we, we are familiar with. Um, but when you look at the details, in many cases, it's not quite so clear. There are lots of instances at the outbreak of war and then during the war itself where things could have gone very differently, that individuals make choices or chance works out in a particular way and, and things happen in, in a way that's not at all inevitable that could be imagined as something very different. 
And that gets us into counterfactual history, which is another whole sort of uh, big question that, that historians like to go around and around about. I'm a, a limited fan of counterfactual analysis um, in its place. Um, but And uh, talking about contingency, I think, requires us um, to, to think about counterfactuals. Right. I always like to make the point in teaching about Nazi Germany, you know, that if, if, uh, Hindenburg and January, the, the night before January 29th, uh, 1933 hadn't decided to appoint Hitler chancellor, things might have gone quite differently. So that it's not, you know, we talk about the rise of the party and the voting support and all these kinds of things, but ultimately it's people making decisions. So Hindenburg, Hindenburg is also a character in this story about Romania, which attracted my attention because uh, you're quite right to say that the Romania, Romania's entry to the war on the Allied side brings Hindenburg and Ludendorff to power in Germany. It causes the, the collapse of, of Falkenhayn. But then I like the point that you make that it also inspires them with a kind of with overweening confidence, to quote you uh, directly. In other words, they see themselves, after m- several years of impressive victories against the Russians, really as the masters of war, that they could drive the Romanians out of the war so relatively quickly. And, and you see that as having particularly tragic effects for Germany in, in, in several different ways. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, you're the one that's going to be doing the book on, on Ludendorff, so you're the one who can, can speak to this. But um, one of the things that really strikes me about um, Ludendorff and Hindenburg is that they seem to uh, epitomize this German problem of tactical expertise and strategic idiocy, um, that they're remarkably capable of winning battles on the battlefield, but not of figuring out what those are supposed to do and what it's supposed to accomplish um, in the bigger picture. Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, there is this – I think that Hindenburg and Ludendorff, as a result of genuine and repeated successes in the East, think of themselves as being able to kind of wave the magic wand of battlefield success and win the war for Germany. Um, and it turns out to be a lot more complicated than that, um, that Germany is facing long-term resource constraints that are going to make it extremely difficult to win the war. Um, and one of the great ironies of this is that, that Falkenhayn, who's been fired as um, chief of the general staff, as, as head of the German war effort, ends up being remarkably effective in Romania. Mm-hmm. Um, he's demoted and then goes to Romania and does quite well for himself. Um, so it turns out that you know, there's lots of tactical expertise to go around uh, in Germany. It's strategic thinking and the ability to imagine um, how you use battles and campaigns to win a war that seems to be in, in short supply. So you probably know that Ludendorff, uh, for the remainder of his life until 1937, when he died, liked to be referred to as Der Feldherr, the, <laughs> the, the battle lord. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, Field marshal wasn't good enough for him. He had to be the battle lord. You talk about the the Russian recovery, really, in 1916 from this, this great re- uh, retreat. And there is, of course, a, a well-known offensive that's carried out in 1916, the Brusilov Offensive. Uh, what, what can you say about that? Maybe what did uh, Soviet historians and generals later think about these successes uh, that the army had had in the Great War? Well, I mean, the, I think the Brusilov Offensive is interesting for a couple reasons. And, and one is, is that it... Of all the, the Russian campaigns in the First World War, it's the clear success. It's the one where the Russians carry out an offensive and it succeeds beyond their expectations. Um, this is the spring of 1916 when um, Brusilov, who's commander of one of the three major divisions of the, the Russian Eastern Front, um, carries out what's supposed to be a diversionary attack against the Austrians. And because of very careful preparation, good leadership, um, clear thinking about the tactical realities of battle um, – wins an enormous victory against the Austrians, um, destroys the Austrian army in the east. 
Um, and then in trying to maintain that success, keeps on pushing and pushing and pushing beyond the point of diminishing returns. Bruce Sullivan ends up slaughtering hundreds of thousands of his own soldiers um, in an effort to preserve that victory. And so I think the Brusilov Offensive both shows Russian success and also the cost of that success in terms of, of, uh, of, of manpower losses and what that does um, to the Russian army. But the other thing I think that's worth noting about the Brusilov Offensive is the way it becomes part of a usable past for the Soviet army after the war. Because the Soviets, even though they're a new regime, they've overthrown the czar, they, they, you know, they're, they're new and different, they want something to show that they have the capability of fighting and winning. And the Brusilov Offensive is a great example for them of success against the Germans. Um, even though most of the battles fought against the Austrians, the Germans are there, the, the Russians fought quite well. And so the Soviets take Brusilov, who's an old Russian aristocrat, and turn him into something of a Soviet hero, complicated one, but a Soviet hero. And they then can use the Brusilov Offensive as an example of how Russians can fight and win against Western powers. Even when it's not the Soviets, they need that as something to show that of, to give a sense of what's possible, that it's not futile to hope to fight against the West and win. And so Brusilov becomes important not only in his own right, but also important for the Soviets as a symbol of what Russians can do. Even when they're not calling themselves the Russian Empire, even when it's a different army, they still want Brusilov as an example. Do, do the Soviets make the point about uh, – or do they seem aware that he pushes – that Brusilov pushes too far? Because that's another way in which uh, the Eastern Front has some similarities with the Western Front. In other words, you know, if you think about Verdun mm -hmm. or the, these battles that, that they start out with a certain kind of intention but then often get pushed to the point where the, the attackers are suffering as heavily as the defenders – you really don't. I mean, right after the war, there is an active debate about Brusilov and what he did wrong and what he did right among sort of Russian generals who had fought in the war, who had observed what had happened and have varying opinions about what he did and whether it made any sense. That goes away, and I think pretty quickly uh, there, there's a, a debate at the margins about Brusilov, but, but the question of casualties is kind of shunted aside. Brusilov is more useful to the Soviets as an example of victory, and they don't want to complicate that too much. Certainly, I mean, Tsar Nicholas himself, and Tsar Nicholas was, was not a guy who was quick on the uptake. Tsar Nicholas was worried about casualties during the Brusilov Offensive. Um, but after the fact, once the war is over with, that aspect of the battle really gets pushed aside, I think. Well, thanks very much. I mean, there's obviously more to the book than this, and you, you touch briefly on the revolution and civil war at, at the end, and I, I highly recommend it to any of our you know, any of our listeners. If you listen to one of the podcasts to prepare for this and made it all the way to the end, then you're forewarned that I usually ask my, my authors to recommend my next book. In other words, what's a, a, a recent book in military history, say in the last two or three years, that you've read that really uh, – uh, impressed you deserves more attention than it than it's gotten i would say i mean there's a couple things there's one coming out uh, on the soviet side there's one coming out um uh, by a guy named whitewood with university press of kansas on the great purges in the soviet military that's really good i, I reviewed the manuscript and was extremely impressed that's going to be out i believe um I'm, I'm later this year so keep your eyes out for whitewood on the great purges in the soviet army um if people are interested in the eastern front there are a number of very good campaign studies. Um, they tend to focus on the German side. Um, we're still waiting for a number of good campaign studies on the, Russians, uh, on the Russian side of the war. Um, but Richard DiNardo has written a number of very good campaign studies 
on what's going on on the German-Austrian side of the lines. Uh, Michael Barrett also has a couple, uh, one on Romania and then one on um, the invasion of the islands off the coast of Estonia, Operation Albion, um, that are very good. And so people who want to follow up on the war in the East, I think Richard DiNardo and Michael Barrett have both done some really good books that are, are worth following up on. Well, thanks very much. I'm, I'm noting these down. And um, thank you very much for your time. All right. My pleasure. My pleasure. 